0: Good morning and happy Easter. Uh, he has risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. That's the response. Oh, we're gonna get it. We're gonna. Get it. He is risen. He is risen yes, amen. Uh, we are talking about Jesus, and actually, that is all we talk about um, every week. Uh, I hope that uh, you would hold me to it. That if we ever preached another name. That, that we would be out of here. Um, so there is only one name that is worth lifting above every other name, and it is Jesus. Um, but as the world came to know Jesus, um, it was pretty profound. Uh, you may have grown up hearing this name. If, if you've lived um, around here, you probably have heard this name a lot growing up, whether you believe the claims of Jesus or not. Uh, but there's just kind of no getting away from the fact that Jesus is famous, um, he is famous here, and he's famous around much of the world, and yet there are still millions or billions even of people who do not know the name of Jesus or who actually is associated with this name. Um, but as Jesus showed up, he showed up and we celebrate Christmas, that, that God the Son, and so understand this, God has existed for all of eternity, and he's existed in three persons. There is one God, and yet he's in three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and so the Son, came and took on human flesh, and that is what we celebrate at Christmas. That's called the incarnation, and so Jesus is born as a baby from this virgin Mary, and he grows up, and, and he's thought to be kind of like everyone else. Like, there's some moments that we see in the scriptures where we're like, wow, he's like incredibly smart at 12 years old, kind of baffling the, the religious elite in the temple and all this stuff, and he's doing these things, and yet just looks like another guy But then all of a sudden, he launches on the scene, and we've been going through this gospel of Mark, and he's baptized, and God the Father cries out, Behold, this this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased from the heavens. The Spirit descends like a dove and lands on him. And so there is the Trinity, this threefold, this God in three persons, and yet one God all represented here, and then he launches into this ministry by going into the wilderness. And then he comes back after praying and being tempted, and he's pulling together this group of guys known as the disciples, and all of a sudden, he just launches into doing incredible things. He's teaching with authority. He's teaching in such a way that everybody who listens is like, how's he saying that stuff? We've never heard anything like this. We've never heard this kind of authority. The way that he teaches and the way that opens our eyes to things that we've been studying for our entire lives, and we didn't get it, and now it's like, what? (laughs) Who is this? And not only is he teaching in such a profound way, but he's doing things we've never seen done before. There's, there are guys who have never walked in their life who are being lowered through a roof, and he's like, your sins are forgiven. Like, you can't say that because you're not God, and only God can forgive sins. Like, you think that's hard? Well, is it more hard to say your sins are forgiven or to, to heal him? Say, like, get up and walk. Hey, get up and walk. And the guy walks away. And, and Peter's mom is sick, and she's got a fever, and he's like, oh, no, you're Okay. And there's this guy with leprosy, this contagious skin disease that everyone around him is supposed to know. He's sick, he's contagious, don't get close to him. He is legally required to scream unclean as he comes into contact with anyone so they know to stay away. And yet this guy comes up and falls at the feet of Jesus and is like, have mercy. And Jesus is like, no, I'm more than willing to touch you. He reaches out and touches him and heals the guy. Like this is the guy, Jesus is the one who's going to the people that everyone else runs from. The guy who comes and is friends with people who are lonely. Is the guy who comes and he loves the people who have never been shown affection. This is Jesus, the friend of sinners. The religious elite are like, you can't do these things. This is not okay. And Jesus just... Crosses them more and more. And like everyone is just kind of racking their brains, like, who is this? And he's making these claims and doing these incredible works and wonders, these things that only God can do. He's walking on water to pass them by. And like, only God can do that. How is he doing this? And some are believing and some are doubting and some are blatantly hating him. And just this kind of collision of how everyone is encountering Jesus in different ways. And yet now he marches into Jerusalem. We talked about this last week, that Palm Sunday, he comes in and everyone's shouting and singing, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. The king has come because this is the Messiah, the promised one. He's going to come restore the kingdom. The Roman empire that's in here has occupied us. He's going to kick them out. We're finally going to be prominent again. We'll be restored as a nation. We'll have a king on the throne. He's coming in, and then just a few days later, now they're all shouting, crucify him. Kill him. We'd rather have Barabbas, the guy that we know is a murderer, and making things way worse on us, we'd rather have him released than Jesus. Crucify Jesus, and they do. He is beaten beyond recognition. He's mocked. All of his friends abandon him. They flee in terror, running away, scared, and Jesus is nailed to a cross and dies. abandoned, And he's buried in a tomb before the Sabbath can begin. And this is where we pick up. Jesus has died. He's in a tomb. And Mark chapter 16, it starts and says, when the Sabbath was over, and so Sabbath would have been Saturday. Jesus dies on Friday. They put his body in the tomb before sundown because sundown Friday starts the Sabbath and it goes until sundown on Saturday. So when the Sabbath was over, so now we're at basically sundown on Saturday. The Sabbath has ended. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought bought spices as the the stores would open for just a few hours as sundown ends on the Sabbath has ended. And so everyone who's like, oh, we haven't had anything open. We need to go get some stuff. They'd run out really quickly, buy what they need. And so these girls have went and they bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. But it's dark and they don't have electricity. And so they have bought what they needed, these spices to anoint this dead body. And now very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise so they could see. And so these ladies have come. The Sabbath is over, and in the Jewish faith, the Sabbath is a day of rest. You're not to do any work. And so they could not do anything. They couldn't even buy the stuff until sundown when they could go buy the stuff, but now it's dark, and so they're waiting for sunrise. So it's Sunday morning, sunrise. There is light, and these women have taken these spices that they've bought, and they're going to anoint this dead body. And why would they do that? Probably the same reason that we do things for dead bodies today, like have a funeral, or a celebration of life service. Do you think that does anything for the deceased? And I'm not trying to be harsh. No. But why do we do it? Because it helps us and our grieving. These ladies are going to anoint a dead body. They have bought spices at their own cost, and now they're going to anoint a dead body. Why would you anoint a dead body with spices? Because it is dead and it's going to start decaying, and it's going to smell awful. But it's in a tomb, and that's inevitable. It's going to decay. It's going to smell awful. So why do this? Because it's part of their grieving to express their their missing him, to express their love and their affection, to process this. That's why we do things like this too. But what I point that out to say, the reason they're doing this is because they fully expect him to be dead, they're expecting to see a decomposing body that they can anoint with spices to try to, to kind of arrest the smell, the stench of this decaying body. They are not expecting a resurrection. They're expecting to see death and come face to face with it and try to salve it and its effect. And so they come not expecting a resurrection. And then it continues in verse three. They were saying to one another, let's get logistical here, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? It's a group of ladies, and this tomb has been sealed. In fact, it's more than just sealed. They didn't just kind of put a stopper in it. Like, they wanted an extra seal, and they wanted a guard, because everybody who was against Jesus was like, look, if people pull him out after all these claims of resurrection and everything, then this is not going to go well for us. Let's make sure this is a done deal. He is dead. He's staying in there. And so they put a seal on the tomb, not only rolling this stone, but there's a seal on this, and there's a Roman guard that's there to make sure that none of the disciples can steal the body. And so these ladies are like, yeah, the Roman soldier is probably not gonna be helpful. But we wanna get in there and anoint his body. Who's gonna move that giant stone? How are we gonna get in there? Verse four, looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Have you been around death? Have you been around the, the final moments of someone before they die? As a pastor, I've done this quite a bit and just the environment, the the way that the room just works as people are coming and going and interacting, the loved ones are there trying to be there for the last breath and all this stuff. Um, It's unique, it's different. Even in this moment as I talk about death, it kind of puts us on edge. Like this is Easter, why are we talking about that? But it's kind of weird, it's abnormal, it's not usual for us, in fact in our culture we try our very best to hide death but even in this moment, 2,000 years ago, these ladies coming into the presence of death would surely feel uncomfortable. And so often, when, it, when I come into an environment where, where someone is dying or has just died, um, then people, because it's just unusual, will start to read into anything and everything. Like a, a bird flies over and, and something's like, is this a sign? And, and just anything that happens that is unexpected just takes on this new kind of meaning. And people question all this stuff. And that's normal because it's part of us grieving and just kind of our psychosis in that moment. So you just imagine these ladies are already on edge and they come up expecting a tomb to be sealed that they're wondering, how are we gonna get in there? And then they walk up and it's wide open. You imagine that moment. Now the terror really starts to set in. Everyone's already been kind of anxious, like, we're going to look at a dead body We love to, like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make it through this. We're here together. We didn't come into, like, we need support. And then you walk up, and here's an open tomb. What? What is this? And it continues, verse five. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Like, understatement. (laughs) Alarmed. And what does he say? Don't be alarmed. He told them, you were looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Just as he told you. And the seeming silence of the Sabbath From the day of Christ's death until the day of his resurrection, God was at work. And that is the essence of Sabbath every time. That's why we still should remember the Sabbath and celebrate it, and not in a legalistic way, but to see the beauty of we can rest, and we actually need rest, because God is still at work when we are asleep and resting. He is never caught off guard. He is at work. And so we see this beautifully in the resurrection of Jesus, that he was at work on this day of silence and grieving. God was working. When Jesus predicted this, he would talk about seeds I say, you know, the seed to bring about life, the seed must first die and fall <laughs> into the ground and, life follow. and then suddenly life bursts forth and you never saw any of that happening. It was happening in the dark below the ground. Um, one of our members, Chris, every week I, I share with him the text that I'm going to be preaching, and just to, to engage in some discipleship, he'll study it and wrestle through it with me. And I just I want to share one of the comments he made as he's reflecting on this reality. He said this: He said, "Like a photographer in a dark room, the true beauty is not seen until the photograph is exposed to the light. However, without the dark room, there's no picture." There was something happening. When Christ was buried, he was not just dead and obliterate. He was alive, or he's alive in that He's working for us. He is conquering death and hell and the grave so that he now shows up to John, this apostle, on the Isle of Patmos later on, and he says, look, I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death and hell. <laughs> Who's got the keys of death? Jesus does. He has conquered it. He was at work. And now this... Man in bright white clothes, an angel is here and saying, look, hey, you're looking for Jesus? He's not here. He's a risen. And listen, you need to go tell people. Go tell the disciples. He's gonna meet them in Galilee. Like, just like he said, he already said this is gonna happen. He has come back to life. And who is he telling this to? Who's the first recipient of the first Easter sermon? Some ladies. And that is huge, Because in this culture, in ancient Palestine, a couple thousand years ago, a woman had no legal standing in court. A woman's testimony meant nothing. This is a very patriarchal system. And so this group of ladies would have no legal standing to say, he's resurrected, and yet God decides these are the first ones who get to hear this good news. They'll be my first witnesses of the resurrection. Ladies, he's alive. And go tell, go tell them. This is so much like God to show up to the least and the least likely and say, you have a special place. So ladies, preach the gospel. Boldly share, see that Jesus has come for all of us, the witness of these women. And this speaks beautifully to the historicity of this text. But if this was just made up, Mark is writing this gospel and just trying to make it sound good and so people will believe it. He would not include this detail that ladies receive this testimony first because that's kind of going against the culture there. If he wanted this to just be widely accepted, like, oh, sounds good, then he would have said, some men showed up of great status. Everyone knows them. Prominent place at the city gate. Yep, showed up to them. But instead, it's a group of ladies that no one would listen to that is our God coming to us and where were these disciples that the women received instructions to go tell they're hiding they're huddled up in fear because Jesus has died and they're afraid we were following him people saw us Peter so emphatically denying him that he starts cussing (laughs) I don't know the man bleep 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 they're terrified if they killed him what are they going to do to us They're huddled up, hiding, afraid of what's going to happen. And look at the grace that's extended in this as this angel tells them, go to Galilee. He's gonna meet you there just like he told you. Remember, Jesus had already told them, when I die, go ahead, I'm gonna meet you here. He's already told them, they knew this. And what the angel is telling them, what God is saying through this messenger, this angel, I'm not angry. Can you just imagine that? Like, as a human, if I'm in this situation and I just abandoned Jesus some days ago, watched him die from a distance, and I'm thinking, he predicted this, he said I'd abandon him, he said we'd all fall away, and I watch him die this horrific death, and now he is alive, he is truly God, he is the creator, and as his creation, I abandoned him, and I'm the reason that he died on that cross, and so if I'm the creation and the creator has been killed by creation and the creator has come back to life, what do I expect the creator to do? Crush me. I expect him to be full of wrath and destroy me. And they're afraid. And yet, now this angel is saying, hey, he already told you this is going to happen. He's not mad. Go meet him. He's coming back for you. And then look at what the ladies do despite that, that message of grace there. Verse eight, they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Hey, ladies, hey, good news, you, you get to be the first recipients of this good news, this gospel, he's alive, and now listen, go tell the disciples that he's alive, he's gonna meet him in Galilee just like he said, no, he's not mad. I went, oh, and they run away Terrified. They're scared and they don't do exactly what they were told to do. They disobey and isn't that exactly what we do? (laughs) It's like our failure is so blatant and predictable at this point as humans. (laughs) But isn't that the point of Easter? Isn't that the beauty of Easter, that Christ has died because of our failures? He has taken on our sin, all of our shame, all of that has been placed on him. It's been nailed to a cross, and now he has risen back to life, saying, you too will now have life with me as the first fruit to come from the grave and say, look, spring has come. Everyone who's been dead in this long winter, back to life. Let's go. Follow me. And it's all by grace. You didn't deserve this. So now, ladies, you've heard the best news the world has ever known. And you run away and fail. But that's okay. Because that's at the heart of Easter. That it's not about what you can and cannot do. It's what I have done for you. He is alive. He died to pay for our sins. He rose again so we can have life forevermore with him. Because this is the thing. Easter changes everything. The risen Son of God He changes everything. When you encounter Jesus, it changes everything. Everything is different. And there are two things as we conclude this, I just want you to take away so much this year as we celebrate this historic moment of Easter that Jesus has come back from the dead and has conquered. He is the victor. Two things I want you to see. The first is that Jesus did not die against his will, this was the plan. This was the plan all along. This did not happen against him. And you need to hear that because it's a growing belief in our culture, this idea of process theology, if you want to get the technical term. But it's this idea that everything's constantly changing. It's very postmodern. Like, what is actually true? Everything's relative, all this stuff. And so God must really be like us. And so God is diminished to this being that is, yeah, he's probably more powerful than us, but he's just responding to things. And so this happens. Oh, got shift Oh, pivot, he's just reacting to all this stuff and like, what will you do and what will you do and just trying to work it all together and he's really strong and he's really powerful so he works it out in the end but like, he's really responding. That's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. This was the plan, the greatest sin the world has ever known. The only truly innocent one has been murdered by his own creation and this was his plan. Nothing happens outside of his hand and his will. Look at this. This is John chapter 10, Jesus speaking before his death. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep who are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. Beloved, hear this. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Then before his death, predicting his death, he said, listen, this is the plan. I'm gonna lay down my life for you. And actually, more than just you, a lot of people that you don't even know to bring them into this pen. Because I'll be the shepherd. You'll be my flock. But listen, I have the right to lay down my life. I have the right to take it up again and I will do that. And he does. This was his plan all along. Listen, um, this, this last week, sitting at the table with my kids and Leland comes running up my son and he's got a coin and he wants to play the coin toss game. I'm like, all right, all right here we go. All right, so here's the thing. Heads I win, tells you lose, call it. Heads I win. Ready? Heads I win, tells you lose. Tails, I, you lose, sorry. <laughs> Heads, I win, tails, you lose. Tails, you lose. Do you get it? Heads, I win, tails, you lose. I don't ever lose. I always win. And after like three or four flips, my wife's like, Leland, stop playing! Stop playing! He's tricking you! He's tricking you! You're never gonna win! I'm like, I'll ruin all the fun, Mom. This is Easter. He doesn't ever lose. This was his plan. He will not lose. This is God omnipotent, God almighty, full of glory, nailed to a cross because this was the plan, and I want to show you how much I love you, and I'll come back to life so that you can live in freedom forever fully forgiven. This is our God. This is why Colossians 2, 14, 15, we started this passage last week. I want to finish it for you. So this is what it says. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. All of your debt, if your faith is in Jesus, it's all been paid for. It's nailed to a cross. There is nothing standing against you anymore. Now listen to what he says next. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them and him. This, when it looks like Satan is winning, when it looks like darkness reigns and the world goes black because Jesus is dying on a cross, it's actually that he is an exalted king forever and he's won decisively. There's nothing that can stand against him. He has won. This was the plan from before creation. So see his glory. He is full of majesty. This is God. No one is like him. This is who we celebrate. This is Easter. He's alive forevermore. Nothing stands against him. Listen, there's one last thing. I said there was two. One last thing that you have got to see from Easter, that Easter is not just saved from. Easter is saved to. You are not just saved from your sin and the consequences of our rebellion. You are saved to God himself. Yes, you were saved from your sin, but you were not just saved from your sin. They're like, okay, here, blank slate, you're free again. No, you were saved to God, that you are his, and he is ours. God is at the center of this, and we so often want to think of the gospel and think of life and just put ourselves at the center of it. They're like, look at what God has done for me, and like, we celebrate that, and it's true. You should. Prudence is good. There's wisdom in prudence, but this is the truth. From start to finish of scripture, it's about God. He is at the center of it all. We are saved from our sin to be saved to him, that we can be a people for his possession, to proclaim the majesty of him, the royal priesthood, proclaiming his excellencies, the one who brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into marvelous light, that we are his and this is about him. You must see that. Jonathan Edwards, the famous American preacher and pastor, he said, the creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart and that in this way, God might be glorified. That if you see Easter and you fail to see God at the center of it and his glory, you have missed it entirely. This is good news for us, but it is his glory. His glory, He is at the center of it. You know, in the the 80s, there was an experiment. They built this biodome. And they built this biodome in the desert where things die constantly. Any of you remember that? I was born in the 80s, but don't remember this, just being honest. But it's really cool to read about. So they built this biodome, and the idea is everything inside of it is regulated. Like, purified air, purified water, um, the light is just right, and all this stuff. And so in this biodome, they're trying to make, like, the perfect conditions for life. And so humans, plants, animals, all that stuff to flourish. And everything is going great. Things are growing. And then something tragic started happening. These trees that are growing like never before, like, it's incredible. And they'd grow to a certain size, and they just fall over. Next one grows up, falls over. Like, all these... These, these arborists are studying, and they're like, well, we can't find anything wrong with the tree. Like, there are no diseases present. Like, it's, we don't know what's going on. And finally, they realize there's something missing here. You know what it is? Wind. There's no wind to blow on the tree. And so what do the trees do? They keep growing up. And the roots, shallow. And so they keep growing up until suddenly they're not perfectly balanced Plop, <laughs> dead tree. Isn't that life? Like this is, this is what I so long for. Grow deep roots. Let's not be shallow. Let's be people of substance. Grow deep roots. Because there is enough wind in life. You're gonna get pushed around. But where are your roots? Are your roots shallow? Are your roots just in self-absorption that it's really about me? No. Grow your roots deep. Deep, deep in love for God, in the heart of God. See that it is about him. And suddenly when the winds of life come, if you're rooted in God, nothing can stand against. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. You look back over the last year, Like, we need Resurrection Sunday. There have been a lot of things that have died. Your dreams may be dead. Your job may have died. Your spouse may have died. There are so many things. Life has been so full of death in so many ways. The wind is blowing, but what are you sinking your roots into? Let it be God. (laughs) Heads I win, tails you lose. When I'm living for God, (laughs) there's no way to lose. It's even death itself. It's just gain to behold my Savior face to face. This is our victory. We need deep roots. Grow deep roots. This is why Paul, he wrote this prayer, and I want to pray this over you. Um, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter three, he said, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Hear this? I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want you to be rooted in the love of God, that you are truly beloved. He loves you. And his love is not conditional based on what you do or don't do. He loves you. So grow deep roots in that. Be rooted in the love of God. Know the love of Christ. As Paul says, I want you to to have a knowledge of the love of God, of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that's actually unknowable. It just goes beyond your mind's comprehension. I want you to love him because I want you to see how much he loves you and out of that, you will love him more. John Bunyan is a Puritan writer who He's famous for the Pilgrim's Progress. And um, he, he talks in one of his writings about the fact that it's really common for people to love someone that is superior to them or equal to them. But it's so uncommon to love someone who is below you. And you look at the gospel, this goodness, God, the infinite creator, sustainer, redeemer of all, would love us in our sin so much so that he died for us and then rose again victorious to say have life forevermore freedom forgiveness for your sins just believe and follow me so will you confess that you are broken and it's all of us and you need a savior his name is jesus he died for you and he rose again so put your faith in him trust him see his love for you and now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That resurrection power that raised him from the dead is now at work in us. So according to that power, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We pray. God, happy Easter. You are alive forever. and We love you. We thank you. God, we celebrate today because you have given us reason to celebrate forever and we will for all of eternity sing your praises. We will rejoice in you. You, God, are at the center of all this. So help us to remember that this is our hope, that you died and you rose again. God, we love you. Nothing, nothing can stand against you. You're so good, so strong. And you're for us. We rejoice in that. For your glory. And we pray all of this. In the name of Jesus. Amen.